Welcome everyone to Goddard in the World podcast. Today we have Rachel Rice, who is an artist, writer, and certified weirdo who crafts scroll-stopping content for people who want to shape change. Her work centers collapse-informed learnings about grief, death, myth, magic, and meaning-making in pale times. A neurodivergent queer witch navigating multiple health diagnoses and broadly coded as a white cis woman, Rachel is of Swedish, Norwegian, Scottish, Irish, French, German, and English ancestry, living and loving with her partner whose income supports her work on the lands of the Chinook in Portland, Oregon. She works in a dozen kinds of media, plays four instruments, speaks three languages, parents two children, and hollers at one cat, usually not all at once. Welcome, Rachel. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. <laughs> Great to be here. Great to have you and nice to meet you. It's our first Likewise. time meeting and mm -hmm. um, in our little pre-session, it was already very fun and, you know, we got a lot to talk about. <laughs> Love it. Love Goddard. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah. So um, my first question, uh, one of the things I noticed when I was going through your bio and your website, I noticed, I noticed a lot of language that you have around defining your identity. Um, can you tell us, tell me, <laughs> mm -hmm. an early story where it felt important to name yourself precisely? Mm, what a cool question. Well, you know, I do remember being in preschool and they kind of have you, you know, you sit on like a little piece of duct tape in a circle mm -hmm. with your name on it and sure. you go around and you, you were, we were asked, what do you want to be when you grow mm -hmm. up, mm -hmm. you know? And <clears throat> I mean, it was, I must've been under, you know, before first grade. So like four or five years old. And I said, I was going to be an artist. Mm -hmm. And I, I just knew exactly in that moment that that was, it was like, I already was right. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and my parents would tell, you know, stories about how, when I was two, there'd be like condensation on the windows inside. And I would, you know, sit and draw in, in the condensation and make images into the windows and stuff. So, um, yeah, I think that might be the earliest memory I have of kind of being real clear about a part of my identity that, that is still persistent today for That's sure. Great. And I kind of keep, I keep coming back to that. I do a lot of different kinds of work, but you know, when someone says, Oh, nice to meet you. What do you, what do you do? You know, I, I tend to say, okay, I'm an artist. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm an artist and a, and a death worker and a stepmom, and I, you know, do a lot of stuff, but um, that seems to be, a real good umbrella to stand under. Absolutely. And I can see, you know, the, the people of, of the podcast land can't see this, but I, I believe you're coming to us from a studio, your studio. Yes. 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 I'm in my, my little, my little tiny um, converted garage. I didn't do the converting, which was great. It was, it was here when we were, when we were, when we moved in. Um, but it's been a, it's a, been a very literally cool place because it's the smallest space, um, where I, you know, where I live and it's the one that has the, 
air, the air conditioning unit. So it's been, you know, it's been 110, 115 degrees here on the lands of the Chinook in Portland, Oregon. And um, my studio has been the coolest. And in fact, my whole family ate dinner out here a couple nights ago because it was the only place that we could escape the heat. So yeah, I try to spend as much time as I can allow myself. And I have some you know, I have some internalized capitalism and stuff that like sometimes gets mm-hmm. in the way of me allowing myself to just come out in my studio and, and do and do my stuff. So I'm really trying to be more um, in that flow these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? no, that's, it's a lot. Um, do is. you work? I see, I see brushes behind you. And is that a watercolor of a wonderful snake behind you? Do you work in like, Besides the condensation and windows, right? <laughs> you work in multiple media. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah I'm very slutty that way. Um, I really, <laughs> you know, I, I come from um, I come from a public school background, and you know, using the, like words like slutty is probably a good indicator of why I'm not working in public school anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I graduated from the teacher ed program uh, in ninety mm-hmm. or in two thousand at Goddard, and you know, okay. uh, my best best teaching buddies then like none of us are teaching. We all kind of got run out on a rail. Like we were just way too oh, man. Uh, radical for the system, you know. But um, so I've been. I definitely love to paint. I, I like I like doing canvas work. I'm at this point in life really transitioning away from using, you know, really expensive acrylic paints that, um, you know, are kind of like hard to, they're they're easy to clean up, but you know, at at the end of the day, it does go into the water system. Um, they don't biodegrade. So I'm kind Mm. of in this place where I'm moving away from fine art and I've always been more of a folk artist anyways, because I like, uh, I really get uh, excited about artwork that's really and art modalities that are really accessible. So, Hmm. you know, Uh I grew up, I grew up not having access to like, uh, I grew up in a rural place and, and did not have access to like art stores. So there was a lot of like going to the hardware store to find nylon and like hex nuts and like weird stuff to, you know, make things with or going to like the Woolworths, which Yes, I'm very old. And so I went to Woolworths um, and got like nail polish. And, you know, like there was just a lot sure. of kind of doing alternate, um, you know, salvaged. Um, so I, I kind of am moving more towards folk art and and sort of art that self-destructs in a way um, okay. that, that will, you know, not necessarily stand the test of time. So I've been um, really moving towards like natural earth pigments um, I have a subscription to um, this really amazing service called Ground Bright, where every month you get like a little packet of um, mineral pigment or earth pigment or ochre or lakes. Uh, and there's um, a whole beautiful story that you get along with like what, you know, the indigenous like folks that are on that land and how that's been used and how it's being, you know, carefully pulled, like pulled from the ground and how it's being, you know, um, respectfully, you know, cultivated so that like communities are supported and that's all like natural pigment stuff that, you know, mm-hmm. may or may not sort of stand the test of time, but, uh, feels a bit more correct for me in terms of mm-hmm. what kinds of work I, I like to do. Um, mm-hmm. so that's sort of how I'm moving. Yeah. I have a lot of paint brushes and stuff behind me and yeah. I'm, I'm also excited to, you know, kind of work with whatever is actually available, like kind of in my own bioregion and in, you know, what's actually kind of a sustainable thing. Cause I don't, 
I've been using golden paints, which are lovely, but they're also, you know, $80 a bottle and Oof. they're plastic. Like it's essentially plastic and they're very beautiful and highly pigmented. And I can't say enough good things about them. And yeah, I'm sort of interested in, in moving away from uh, fine art and towards folk art and trying to mm-hmm. support people also doing the same who just want to like make art, but maybe don't have a pile of money to do so. Sure. Yeah. Um, you said you grew up in a rural area. Where Where was that? Well, when I was really little, I was in Glencoe, Oklahoma, and okay. uh, I was out way out on you know 500 acres out there. But then in the a lot in the first recession, we moved uh, to the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, as it's known. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I actually went to high school up in Newport, and I lived in North Troy, which is you know about six miles from the Canadian border, and okay. you know a town of about. Well, at the time, it was about 600 people. So, uh, yeah, I actually wow. moved from like suburban Princeton, New Jersey <laughs> okay. to, you know, this this really rural place, um, really arch conservative, you know, rural place. Okay. And, um, I was there when, you know, the whole take back Vermont, you know, anti-gay movement was was mm. was started, which, um, you know, by one of the representatives who actually I had a whole bunch of open conflict with as a public school teacher. And mm. I, I know that there was part of that conflict was why she was interested in starting that movement. Um, I did a whole bunch of gay rights, you know, LGBTQIA like advocacy at that time. And there was a lot of civil unions, you know, legislation and stuff that was happening in, in Montpelier when I was student teaching. And um, that was a big reason why I sort of was interested in transferring from Johnson state, which, you know, all, all, all good things there. And shout out to Ken Leslie, my, uh, my art, my art teacher there, who is an amazing human being. Um, mm-hmm. and I still use, uh, stuff that he taught me in my day to day, but, um, to Goddard, you know, where yeah. there was a lot more just, um, opportunity to, to really employ the kind of praxis and, and activism that, that felt meaningful to me at the time. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. We lived wow. on a hundred acres of land up in the woods for, for a good five years until I graduated. Wow. Um, what, what brought you over there is, is, is your family in farming or kind of, just kind of to live on the land? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Both those things. I mean, my parents were pretty, you know, in the, in the hippie movement. Uh-huh. Um, my, my dad, uh, is, a is a Vietnam vet and was okay. pretty radicalized by his experience in the war. He, he was, he was drafted. Um, mm-hmm. he went, you know, when he was a teenager, um, and saw some pretty horrific stuff in Vietnam. And, um, you know, by the time he was discharged, you know, he's, he still wasn't, uh, old enough to, to drink alcohol, but he was able to, you know, go and write, you know, do this, do this insane, um, stuff for the state. And, you know, he was pretty radicalized in that way. So he, at that time, you know, once he, once he met my mom, they, they had a dream of kind of doing a bit of a back to the land thing. And in the Mm eighties, they bought, land in Vermont, um, the lands of the Abenaki peoples and, uh, kept that, you know, for in their pocket for a while. And mm-hmm. like I said, during the first recession in the early nineties, he got laid off and it was like, Oh, well now is the time. So he went up, you know, six months before we went up and, you know, was made himself general contractor. He was in the building and he built this kind of log cabin and, um, greenhouse and, yeah, he had a tractor and he's, he's, uh, my dad has a doctorate in plant physiology and soil biochemistry. So he's kind oh, amazing. of, <laughs> yeah, but like in a very like farmery kind of way, like he was very yeah. like, 
you know, it like nerdy about plants and, and so am I now, of course, but, uh, it was really about, you know, beautiful gardens and growing food and a certain kind of sustainability. And they had a sugar shack and made, you know, maple syrup and, Mm. but it was, you know, yeah, that was, that was, that was the dream at the time. Wow. That's, that's so interesting. I know that there was, (laughs) this is, this is kind of, well, I guess it's not that weird. Uh, like pretty recently, there was a screening of a film that they did at Goddard or like, you know, online. Um, but like they had a talk back with former Goddard students um, who had protested during the Vietnam War. I don't I don't know exactly what the story was. Wow. So, yeah, it's beautiful. There's definitely like a, I'm sure I'm sure Goddard. Th- protests, sit-ins, and all of that were, like, very uh, active at the time, although your dad wouldn't have been there at the... Like, he would have been... Um, like, right, right, right. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, that was... There's a tradition. There's a tradition. And sure. I think as the... Yeah, no doubt. And as the, you know, as it started out as a seminary, there was, you know, quite a bit yeah. of peace peace activism and stuff that, that came with Goddard that was really um, compelling for me, mm-hmm. you know, when I was looking at schools and it was also kind of a, you know, a fairly academically minded young person and found that like the tests and grades and the sort of the, the assessments and it just didn't feel like I was really scratching the itch that I wanted mm-hmm. to, you know, feel as a, as a, as someone who is interested in thinking about challenging subjects and looking at the world and going, Hmm, you know, is this, is this really the best we can do for everyone? Um, right. and you know, it wasn't until I got to Goddard that, you know, I started being exposed to, to, you know, really, truly radical ideas. Radical is as in like, you know, the word that means rooted, you know, so suddenly, you know, reading a whole bunch of bell hooks, right. You know, and being mm-hmm. around people who, you know, had a, a real sense of like, it could be different, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we could do community and, and we could take care of each other and we can, you know, tease out these ideas in real time, you know, so you kind of get fed this, this myth of, uh, you know, American democracy, right. And, and it's such a, it's such a corporate pile of lies. And and then mm-hmm. to go, you know, be in a community meeting at Goddard, right. You know, to be mm-hmm. looking at a governance document, to be looking at, you know, what, what does de- direct democracy mean? You know, how do you actually mm-hmm. have some praxis around this? How do you actually mm-hmm. make sure everyone is heard? Um, mm-hmm it suddenly becomes not so much about like the American dream and this hyper individualism, but it becomes about the collective and how can the work that we do actually be out in the world, you know, which is why I'm, you know, really happy about this podcast existing, you know, cause there, there's so many of us that, that got radicalized yeah. at Goddard and are now out in the world, you know, with a high level of give a shit, um, yeah. which, you know, I can't say that that goes for most of us, like most of the humans that I, you know, come into contact with. So, you know, any opportunity to talk to someone else that went to Goddard, I'm like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I, I went to so-called traditional schools you know, for my undergrad, I went, I went to like Pace University up here in New York and then Florida State. And I, and I, I value that education. Like, I mean, it, it, it's, 
it was important to me. But mm-hmm. it's also interesting, like to I, I I think you know when I when I went to Goddard, which was not my first choice. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. I was planning to go out to California. When I went to Goddard, I I did I didn't go for like the pedagogy because I didn't understand it. Like I was just mm-hmm. like, oh, this is what I'm interested in studying. You know, different myths and mythology, and I ended up doing mythology of romantic love and how that affects. Mm-hmm our perceptions of it that was my thesis but that's what I wanted to study and I was like I don't know where I can study this right so I needed I needed somebody to talk to about all of it Um, like I I could do it on my own but I was like I need like some sort of structure around this and Goddard gave me the right amount of structure but also opened me up in like ways that I didn't expect and and then you know 10 years later now you know 11 years I guess almost uh since I graduated from my master's it's opening me up even more and this year this past year you know like with with George Floyd and all the racist like racist reckoning um yeah I have just been kind of astounded by how little, <laughs> how little some of us, um, yeah. you know, I, of course, there are activists that have been working in anti-racist uh, teaching for, for so long. Like, but for me personally, Amanda, like I, mm-hmm. th- this is like new to me. And so mm-hmm. um, this, this way of thinking. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, I actually like listen to a podcast that you did a couple of years ago um, mm-hmm. where you were talking about anti-racism and uh, mm-hmm. so- social and racial justice. So how did you, how did you get into, like, how, how were you propelled into that work? Like, mm. is, th- is there a story or a person or was it at Goddard? Oh yeah, sure. I can, I can talk mm-hmm. about that. And I, you know, I've kind of evolved, um, a lot of my understandings, I think around some of this stuff, um, mm-hmm. at this point. And, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting to get into the Goddard space because I actually didn't really have access to the financial means to go live on campus at a school. And okay. like, I was kind of this, I was this gifted student but I also, you know, had a, a fair amount of like childhood developmental trauma. I had some rupture in my family. There's, you know, some alcoholism and mental health stuff that goes with my dad, and, you know, being a Vietnam vet and um, sure. having his own childhood issues and stuff. And um, I was really desperate to kind of figure out how to go to school, but I didn't have really any financial or parent support at all. So okay. being able to do an off-campus program, being able to be like, okay, well, I can work, I can you know, I was, I was hustling, like I was waitressing, but I was also working as a muralist. Um, I, I was able to, you know, get a student loan and go to Mexico, um, with, with my partner at the time, who was actually a station manager of WGDR. Um, you know, oh, nice. and, yeah. So it was, you know, kind of able to live my lessons and, you know, get, get student credit and be able to think and write and kind of, you know, have, have this experience. And, and, and it definitely gave me some foundational, um, uh, just like critical theory kind of understandings where I can kind of look and go, okay, what's the power, you know, stuff that's happening here. And as we know, you know, Vermont and 
like higher ed and, and Goddard has been, you know, pretty predominantly white space. Um, and in white spaces, we know, you know, how that goes now, you know, so there, mm-hmm. I, I can't say that, that I had a lot of, I mean, I, I definitely was exposed to racial justice thinkers and, um, mm-hmm. some, some radical curricula. Um, but it was a pretty, you know, and there was definitely like, there was more diversity there than at the previous school I went to, but it really right. wasn't until, um, you know, it wasn't until Mike Brown was murdered by police in Ferguson, Missouri, that, you know, at the time I was doing a lot of like, I was in a pretty white centric kind of space, which was a very kind of new agey personal development, you know, coaching, manifesting, um, like I was kind of bought into all of that stuff, you know, um, I was doing a lot of like appropriative practices in my art, you know, I was, I was, I was kind of mapping myself onto a lot of things that, that didn't come from my lineage and, you know, sort of felt interesting to me or that I was curious about, but I didn't have um, a lot of awareness around, like, I I was still under the impression that white supremacy was, you know, people in, in KKK hoods, like being overly racist. And I didn't really, like, I knew whiteness was really a problem. And I kind of had this sense that, wow, if we ever really like looked under that rock, we would all sort of you know, um, cry for a million years. Right. So it was sort of like, well, I'm not gonna look under that rock. Um, yeah. And then Mike Brown was killed and black lives matter was born. And I was doing Uh a lot of work on the internet. Like I was kind of like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I don't have to have like a job job. I could like, I can do, uh, work on online and not have to go into be in a cubicle and like go to team meetings and crap like that. Like I was all about it. And I couldn't believe in this sphere of like personal development, so-called liberation, all these words like revolution and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, magic and manifesting and achieving your highest potential that nobody in my field was going, Oh, wow, there's a civil rights movement, like exploding right now. And like, if we really want to talk about liberation, how are we not doing the absolute minimal of Mm -hmm. like, throwing out a BLM hashtag on Twitter, folks, like, and I started asking my colleagues and friends, like, Hey, why aren't we participating? Why aren't we amplifying? Like we have this massive collective audience. We're all online. You know, mm-hmm, this was mm-hmm. this was years ago now, right? Like twenty sure. whatever, what was that, 2014? 2014. Some, yeah. Yeah. I right. So. You mm-hmm. know? And I was completely shunned by my community. It was like I was like um, a hot potato. I was like, mm-hmm. I mean, I stopped being invited to the brunches. I stopped being invited <sighs> to the summits. I stopped Whoa. being recorded for, you know, it was like, I was doing, I was doing art retreats, like in, in Bali and in San Miguel de Allende. I stopped being invited to teach at those. And I was like, oh, oh shit. Right. And I was wow. like, well, you know what? I'm going to just detonate. Like, <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I, I sort of managed to get inside these really white dominant spaces that purported to be about revolution and liberation Mm. and go, this is bullshit. This is complete hypocrisy. And I, and I started saying, look, we need to get on board with this or I'm actually going to write about how we're not. And everybody Mm. just like put, you know, pulled the wool over their eyes and stuck their heads in the sand. And I started writing about it Mm. and it completely destroyed my career. Mm. I, I lost like all my income, you know, wow. um, I also at the time met my partner who's, this is why I put my economic bio in what you read is that I have uh-huh. a partner who's a white man in tech. 
He's uh-huh. a computer programmer. And mm-hmm. he was like, write whatever you want. He's like, you don't, you don't actually need to, to have this, this kind of job anymore. And so just to say, there's extreme amount of privilege that I was able to leverage in order to detonate mm-hmm. my career and sort of say, hey, we need to get on board with this Black Lives Matter thing because it is ripping through this country and it is on us, white folks, mm-hmm. to like do some solidarity. Um, but the, mm-hmm. the way that there was so much resistance and so much refusal to even do the abject minimal made me go, all right, this is way, way, way worse than I thought. And I felt so freaking naive, you know, Mm. I mean, I was really deeply, deeply naive. And as I started to like scratch into the surface of it a bit, the pain and trauma, the collective pain and trauma, and particularly among non-white folks and black and indigenous and people of, of color communities, like that's volcanic. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just been like women like me who are just like, la, 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 manifesting and like, you know, having no freaking clue that that comes all at the expense and on the backs of other people in a history Mm -hmm. of genocide genocide and racism that built our economy that lets me be this way. And I Mm -hmm. have no, I had no sense that there was like anything really solidarity or like healing or even like ancestrally, like going way back to look at like, it wasn't, you know. It wasn't just like here. It didn't just start in 1619. Like, you know, this stuff has been going on in Europe. This stuff has been, you know, like there's really, really deep epigenetic trauma. So it's, I've even gotten to this point where I'm like, okay, you see a whole bunch of like anti-racism, like programs and books and things you can buy and all these white women that are just so fascinated by their racism right now, right? You know, they like, they'll like join a book club and read my grandmother's Uh hands, but they won't think twice about buying another house. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm, Or like, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about like becoming a landlord, you know, or like actually doing something that like materially benefits other people by saying, okay, I'm not going to keep growing. I'm not going to keep expanding. I'm not going to keep manifesting and becoming wealthy. It's like the way that we've been so resistant, particularly among white women to like doing any actual like kind of limits on our own growth, it makes me go, okay, so growth actually isn't really what it's about for us, right? Like growth is really great for kids and cancer and capitalism. Mm -hmm. But the rest of us really need to like have all the seats and really go, okay, how can we actually like, you know, stop growing? (laughs) That's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah. yeah, no, that's, that's, that's awesome. There was, um, so this past, I don't know, when did we start it? I, I think it was February. Um, so my friend and alumni council organizer, Kaylena Mills, and I started the, this anti-racism learning circle. And we called mm-hmm. it a learning circle because it's not a teaching circle, like, mm-hmm. um, because I'm not an expert <laughs> in anti-racism. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to have some sort of structure in which to have these discussions, um, mm-hmm. to, to have some discussions. And so we started this circle. We are uh, six months in and like our, our next session is our last session for a, a little while. And it was going to be about protest. And Kayleen is like, it's I think we got to do it about capitalism. <laughs> she's like, we can't <laughs> avoid it. We keep talking mm-hmm. about it. She's like, just, yeah. let's just fucking do it. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I was like, all right, all right. So yeah, so so that is, um, so we collect readings and we co- like we 
we collate them around different topics and then send them out to to the to the people who are participating and then we have like a discussion once a month based on those readings but also like how to imagine a world an anti-racist world where these things don't (laughs) don't happen or like how to how to reimagine the police how to reimagine voting how to reimagine and the next thing is going to be capitalism and it's it's really freaking hard oh (laughs) yeah you know like yeah and and you know i i i am a kid of immigrants i'm first generation and um my parents are filipino and mm. immigrated from there. I was born here. Mm-hmm. I, you know, my perceptions around money are rooted in like a, you know, in capitalist thought, you know? And so I don't know how to unlearn that yet. You yeah. know, like, I, I don't, you know, you were, you were talking about internalized capitalism and I feel this. <laughs> Like oh, it's pretty deeply. It's so, yeah. I would even yeah. call it, I would go so far as to even call it like a spell, you know, mm. like almost like a, you know, a, a, a ghostly kind of, of possession. Like I do think mm-hmm. that, you know, all of our peoples um, had to trade something. Yeah. To be to be able to quote, make it, you know, and to come here. And it wasn't like, it wasn't the myth of like, oh, we just want a better life. It was like, we were all running from something that was, that was absolutely terrifying. And that was empire, you know? And Mm -hmm. so at this point, you know, really looking at how, how empire has really deeply kind of possessed most of us, you know, Mm -hmm. how, then the question is like, how do we unspell that? Um, Mm -hmm. I don't, I I think a lot of it is really, truly, uh, these are neurobiological issues now. You know, these are like in our bodies in a somatic kind of way that we've understood certain things to be true. So we Mm -hmm. can kind of come at them with ideology. We can understand them with critical race theory and kind of see the scaffolding of power, right? But I don't actually think ideological solutions are going to solve neurobiological problems, right? So like it becomes this kind of really meta quantum, you know, difficult thing to, to, to come at because most people don't really even understand we're so deeply spelled by this idea that you know you're supposed to work <laughs> if you yeah. don't have a job there's that's on you you know that yeah. we, we we live in a culture where people just die in the street you know mm-hmm. and you step over them like on the way to your philanthropic fundraiser like it's mm-hmm. you know it's really so in our bodies um to not be able to to withstand to have a window of tolerance for the kind mm-hmm. of generational epigenetic trauma that led us to this moment Right. Mm-hmm. And it's all connected on a continuum around, you know, the climate disaster, you know, mm-hmm. the the way that the pandemic has really like blown open the clarity that we don't give a shit about each other, that the empire doesn't give a shit about any of us, you right. know, and Jeff Bezos can like get on a rocket <laughs> while the Whole Foods cashier asks me if I want to round up for the sake of the planet. This happened to yeah. me yesterday and I oh laughed in her face. I was such a bitch, but I was like, I had this immediate visceral reaction. I was like, I, I, it was hilarious to me. I was like, Oh, Whole Foods <laughs> wants me to round up for the planet. 
I was like, yeah, yeah that's a hard pass. Because let me tell you something. Sorry, Emma. Like, I know it's not on you. And I'm so <laughs> sorry that you had this ask, this bullshit question of every yeah. single person that comes through your register way. But like, Whole Foods doesn't give two shits about this planet. And this is yeah. all an actual tax write-off for the dude that doesn't pay any taxes that could actually solve some of these problems for these people. Yeah. Like we definitely need a learning model and not an achievement model. And that's why I love what you're doing in that circle. Right. Mm. Cause a lot of the, like the whiteness and the capitalism are just like twin ghosts, you know, mm-hmm. and it becomes like, well, I need to be an anti-racist person. I'm not racist. I have to be some, it's like, no, it's not about who you are. It's not about mm-hmm. all your languages and your, and your correct, like terminologies and behaviors. It's like, you have to interrogate what you think to, you know, to be absolutely true. And you have to right. live in a way that actually aligns with that, which is mm-hmm. so, so difficult. That means you can't freak out when someone's going through, like a houseless person's going through your recycling, which mm-hmm. I see all the time. You don't call the cops to solve, you know, like they're your personal, like Yelp or something for what's going on in your backyard. Right. And like, you got to listen to people like Alexis Pauline Guns, you know, who really talks about like what you were saying that we have to imagine it first. And that's mm-hmm. like what I think as an artist, I'm like, there's this idea that like being an artist is about personal expression. And mm-hmm. it's not like mm-hmm. Nina Simone was right when she said like, it's an artist's duty to reflect times. Mm-hmm. That's what artists mm-hmm. are here. If you're an artist right now, like your, your responsibility is to look at the world and say something about that. Reflect yeah. the times that you're in, you know, Lenny Strobel, Filipina, check her work out. She's amazing. Mm, Decolonial okay. thinker, really, really beautiful. Um, but you know, the visionary speculative future stuff is like, mm-hmm. if we can't imagine a world about without police, if artists aren't here to help us do that, what the mm-hmm. hell are we talking about? Yeah. What do you think is going to go? If we can't even conceive, you can't literally can't imagine a world without police. Well then shoot. I don't know what to tell you. Maybe start imagining it you know, and start doing some, like, start living in a different way, not just Mm -hmm. like getting all your language and behaviors all lined up so that you're somehow unimpeachable. It's like, no, we're, we're all like, (laughs) we're all a hot mess. Yeah. There's blood on our hands, like on all of our hands. um, Thank you. Reckoning with that is, is, yeah, it hurts. Like what you were talking mm. about earlier, you know, like and feeling naive and that sucks. Like <laughs> so like it's right. But you know, there is language going on uh, uh, like right now in the laws in the especially the Florida one is, is affects me cuz I have family there. Um the about critical race theory and like they don't want they're going to like poll public university students, faculty, staff, you know, on their political beliefs. And that is some McCarthyism shit, you know, and like it's insane. And yeah. like yeah. the reasoning is because people shouldn't have to feel uncomfortable. I'm like, are you kidding like, yep. That is, that is what education's about. Like, right. how are you going to ever learn or reckon if if you can't get uncomfortable? That's I just, so. That is yeah. some real talk. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's really like you can really see, you know, the whiteness that shows up there as a as a sort of move towards purity and a move towards this idea that we all deserve to feel safe at all times. 
And to me, that has a deep root in a cultural uh, avoidance of death and a death phobia. And, And that's a big part of why I moved into, you know, I moved out of doing like transformational intuitive painting retreats. And into uh, volunteer hospice work because I was like, okay. "What is going? What is going on here?" Like, I'm always sort of like looking through history and and really trying to understand where did this amnesia, you know, occur where where we don't know how to be human anymore, you know? And it got me down this rabbit hole of like, "Oh, well, we don't actually initiate humans into humanity anymore." Mm. Like, you, there used to be, you know, in in more intact cultures you know, procedures by which humans learn how to become human. Like most, most animals kind of know how to be their animal when, after they're born, they don't need like lessons, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. they don't need like cultural structures and scaffolding to like figure that shit out, but humans do. And it takes like 20 years, you know, it takes like 13 years to hit the place where you go, Oh, I need to like mm, find myself. And so then you would, you know, you'd be taken someplace where you would actually have an encounter that might put your life at risk. Mm. And you may or may not come out of that. But that was a way of kind of having it was a it was mythically held, you know, there was Mm. like a story there was like, you there was a before and after. And so I feel like collectively, we're in this like adolescence where, you know, we have no initiation rights. And so we just burn the village to the ground to feel its warmth. Like, you know, there's Mm. no actual like, fuel for the fire there. And I, I, as I started getting into death work, I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, no one wants to look at this stuff. Like the Mm -hmm. people dying don't want to look at it. They're like, there's so much like the whole, the whole industry and even in the hospice industry, which, you know, gets sort of, my mother was a hospice nurse and, you know, all respect. And at the same time, like the entire ethos is around getting people more time, right? Mm -hmm to live in a death phobic culture, which really just looks like more dying in a really mm-hmm. unpleasant way. Mm-hmm. Um, and having like quote patient centered care, which is still this hyper individualism that your death is somehow, you know, a personal, your final personal expression. And just like with artists, it's like, that's not actually what it's all about. Your art mm-hmm. isn't all about you. And actually your death isn't all about you either. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. death practices are what make a culture understand mm-hmm. who it is. And we're mm-hmm. just like, nope, that's not real. Yeah. And half the time, I'm not even managing the person that's dying because the person's dying is often busy dying, but their family, their yeah. friends, the yeah. nurses, everyone's like, we we need to get them more time, more interventions, more treatments, more yeah. green juice, more smoothies, more more reishi mushrooms, like. And it's just like, at what point do we go? Oh, okay, so someone's dying. Cool. You know, how, what, how does that, you know, like, how are we going to use that to like teach and be in an, a learning model and not an achievement model where you're like this, like all-star elder, you know, when actually, you know, someone's changing your diaper, but that doesn't show up on the little video highlight reel at your funeral, does it? Right. So we get to, we all get to that point And then we all collectively spiritually crap our pants because there's been this promise that you're going to just go on forever and ever. And the truth is we have no real death practices. We don't do ancestral like remembering. We don't know where mm-hmm. we came from. When we introduce ourselves, we say what our jobs are. We don't say mm-hmm. I came from Ross clan. You know, mm-hmm. we don't mm-hmm. say who our, who our people were, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like we, that's whiteness amnesia. And it's really baked into this whole anti-critical race theory stuff. 
you know, it really has its roots in a lot of death phobia, not wanting to know how it got like this. How did it get this bad? It was like, nope, you just map yourself onto machinery and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You have this individualized narrative and it's all under the umbrella of being an American and it's absolute zombie culture garbage. And here we are having some culture wars over it. And the death is like right here. Like we're all going through a pandemic and it's like, oh, no one's going to talk about death. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it feels like the denial of death, especially in this past year, is just like you're just not looking. (laughs) You are purposely shielding. You're purposely looking away. It's like, no, no, no. Like, we got to deal with this. (laughs) Like, we need the trauma. We need the rituals. Like, that part. um, When. Biden would like was taking office like the day before and he had mm-hmm. that like national mall memorial. Mm-hmm. I wept because I like, and I, I, I wasn't even expecting it. Like I was mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, we haven't done this yet. Mm-hmm. Like, that's right. Fuck, you know, yeah. like, and it felt like it was emotional, obviously sad, but needed you know like super necessary and i've talked to you know i have i have friends that i talk to like every week and i'm here in new york and most uh, you know some of my friends are here as well and we have like a very specific trauma regarding covid um because um just of the way that it was here in the city like and how was um, it for you um, in the first few months, it was like nonstop sirens. It was very quiet, um, except for the sirens. And I live on a street where ambulances come. Mount Sinai Hospital is near my apartment and the anti-gay field hospital (laughs) like the franklin whatever Mm -hmm. franklin graham sponsored field hospital Mm -hmm. was set up right across mount sinai in central park um to take the overflow for for uh covid patients the um i i think i've said this on the podcast my husband got sick at the beginning but we couldn't go like or we chose not to go because he Mm could breathe you know and like um because it was truly the very beginning it was like march 19 Um, oh wow yeah and so he got really sick and at first i didn't know what it was you know like i i was like i I don't know you know like maybe you're not that sick like who knows but he could breathe and they were turning away people who could breathe um like from hospital and so, yeah. yeah, so there's like a very specific trauma that we, you know, and the refrigerated trucks and tents, right. you know, like the overflow for the morgues. It was a fucking lot. <laughs> like, right. and so um, a year and a half later, or not even a half, a year mm-hmm. later, we are still living through this trauma. Like, and my, I, you know, people, certainly there are some people who are like thrilled that like, you know, the, of course the vaccinations, you know, that's, that's 
these are good things. But like, they're thrilled not to have to wear their mask anymore and like, you know, go to shows and like whatever. And I'm like, I need like an easing back in. <laughs> like, this is, this is a lot, you know? And yep. so, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Um, yeah. That, thank you. That's, that's yeah. real, real talk. And yeah. it really shows like how deeply sort of uncollectivist we are, you know, that yeah. there's such a push to like what I want my yeah. dream, what, yeah. what I want, I want the best for my kids. They're going to go to the best school. Like we're yeah. going to live in the best neighborhood. We deserve, like, there's just no kind of like sense of like, well, maybe I could put my own personal preferences that aren't actually survival <laughs> dependent. You know, like I don't right. like, I am not going to die if I don't go to a club show, you know, yeah. and that we could like actually relocate our security in taking in community care, like my, my, my mm -hmm. dear friend and, and one of the best teachers of my life. And I, I shudder to think what would have happened to me if I hadn't met her, but Jen Lemon tells me a lot, like, you know, community care is the only future proof business. Mm. Like that's how it's going to be. It's like, you know, we cannot keep waiting for, for, for saviors in, in the form of pharmaceuticals or in the mm -hmm. form of, you know, um, empire or like, you know, legislation to come and make everything okay for us. Like, it's really going to be about, do you know your neighbor? Are you mm -hmm. able to collaborate across difference with your neighbor? You mm -hmm. know, I mean, I have a neighbor who, who definitely doesn't vote the way I do. It's pretty obvious okay. by the stickers on their truck, you <laughs> sure. know? So like, you know, when they go and when they went to tear up the, the, the strip on their you know, in front of their house by the street, I was like, what if we made a garden here, you know? And so we tried, and I've talked about this in some other podcasts and stuff, but like, you know, really kind of going hyper-local with like, mm. you know, like Martin Shaw says, be famous in a five mile radius, mm. you know? Cause like, as we move into more collapse, like, you know, cause we are in a, in a death phobic culture that has no sense of collective responsibility or limits. I do not see this improving. <laughs> I do not see us getting back to normal or it getting all better. Um, mm -hmm. That we're going to have to really root deeply into like my my well being is bound up with yours. Mm -hmm. You know, I need mm -hmm. to give a shit about your kids. Like one of the most like I think important activist things anybody could do right now is to have a relationship with a child that you didn't make. Mm -hmm. Go get needed by a kid. You know. And like, mm -hmm. let's like kind of like do some revillaging here because the only way I'm not going to die in the street is to make sure that I build enough goodwill that no one will let me, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, that there's going to be enough people that I've actually demonstrated a level of give a shit that they're going to be like, Oh, Rachel Rice needs a little care right now. Let's make sure that she gets it. You know, and that's not like my only motivation. Like I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a primate with mirror neurons, right? Like I'm just trying to like get my, <laughs> I'm just trying to get my central nervous system needs met, my attachment needs met, you know? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It's not just like uh, trying to, trying to do the, like all for me, but like, you know, my, my own kid who's, who I didn't make, um, mm -hmm you know, has said like, well, what can we do about this? We need to like stop fossil fuels. We need to just, we can fix it. And I'm like, Abe, it's actually too late. Like, it's really mm. hard to look a kid in the face and say, you know, what the real truth is. And I don't always know when it's appropriate to, to, 
to download around collapse with children, right? Because their window of tolerance is pretty limited. And there's a lot of depression and anxiety out, out there. You can just look on TikTok and learn a lot, right? You know, so and at the same time, I don't want to shine people on because I know if I reached a certain age and I was lied to, I would have mm. been like, why didn't you tell me the truth? When did you know? When did you know yeah. what the actual truth was? And why didn't you actually tell me? You know, mm. because I have now this dream that I'm going to go to college in Florida and it's and it's a bullshit dream. And you shined me on. Like, how dare mm. you? Right. You know, so I'm a little like, where's your window of tolerance? Like, how much can I kind of tell you about like, hey, look, we don't actually know how it's all going to go. We know it's not going to be great. And, you know, climate migration in my 60s, that's going to be fun. But like, we can actually say, okay, you know what our job is right now? It's not to like, figure out how to fix it, because we're going to bring all the knife edge of whiteness and capitalism and all the things we've internalized for centuries to the very solutions that we try to move forward, right? It's really not about fixing. It's about death practice. And it's about being with, it's about hospice right? Mm -hmm. Where there's mm -hmm. really nothing to be done. All you have to do is actually be with it. You know, yeah. like Donna Haraway says, you stay with the trouble, right? And mm -hmm. like, what I can tell my kid is, look, I don't know how it's going to go. But what I can do is tell you that we're in this together. We're going to do community care. We're going to take care of each other. And whatever happens, you won't go through it alone. That's what I can promise you. I think there's this really interesting thing that you were saying about death denial um and maybe it is a more white thing <laughs> but, but yeah. Yeah, yeah because because like i'm i'm so one of my favorite movies is coco um the pixar movie Love and it. when i when i saw it I weeped in the movie theater and yeah. then I texted my entire family and said, you have to watch this before I, because I was like going to go visit for Christmas. I was like, you have to watch this. I need to, we need to be able to talk about this. And the reason it resonated so strongly with me is because it, it's so, you know, it's like Mexican practices um, mm -hmm. around remembering and ancestors um, and death. And and it felt very familiar to my own uh, family's practices um, in, mm -hmm. the, in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And that's that's real. Like, the, I mean, you know, we can talk about Spain and Mexico and the Philippines and the, that totally, relationship. Totally. It's yeah, long, yeah, yeah long history mm -hmm. but right. um you know suffice it to say that people sleep at the graves um on all saints eve i guess um, right and clean them and you know every time that you're that you visit you bring food and and it, it's not a quote-unquote big deal you know right? it's like it's like oh you know like and and my mom, you know, we don't have, I don't know about knocking on wood. It's not really like at this time, we don't have relatives buried in the States. Okay. Um, and so my mom will like on, on people's birthdays, like her dad's birthday or her mom or my dad's mom or wh whoever, 
on their birthdays or their death anniversaries, she'll text us and like just say, you know, happy death anniversary, happy birthday to Lola, you know, like whatever. And she'll usually text like a little memory or something. And I never thought of that as like, that's good. Different, you mm-hmm. know, I was just like, oh, this is just what my mom does, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. but, but I guess it is more unusual than mm-hmm. other, you know, um, my husband is white. And when his grandfather died, they, it was very sudden and unexpected. And it was, I mean, I don't know if they talk about it. <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, and it was so traumatic, um, mm-hmm. but um, there wasn't a memorial or funeral or anything like um, they, you know, no. they just my 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 husband went out there to like be with his grandmother for like a little bit, but they didn't have that kind of thing. Right. And so it's like, you know. Yeah. And so I just, then we get to the place where we're at the end yeah, and we're like, who's going to remember me? Yeah. Cause I haven't been doing the remembering. I haven't been texting. Right. Like I yeah. didn't, you know, or we just have the highlight reel, you know, you sort mm-hmm. of like show the slideshow of the best moments, but you know, not when you actually like, there's a, there's a look that all that, that every dying person gets, you know, if they get, mm-hmm. if they're lucky enough to like, you know, get the dying look, cause sometimes you mm-hmm. just, you're gone. Right. For whatever reason. Yeah. But, um, and like, we all start to look the same in a certain way that like babies look the same, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's never shown like, that's like, don't show that, you know? So like, there's this real kind of, <laughs> you know, and then you kind of read about death practices among like pre-white people and non-white people, mm-hmm. um, which is such like the language is so hard. Right. Cause then you're still like right. centering whiteness around. It's like, I just hate sure, all, sure, all sure. of it, but it, <laughs> you know, no, I, but like, I there's other, you feel me. Um, but there's yeah. like, you know, there's, 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 there's cultures where like, you know, you go and put your father's body on the pyre. And then at, at some point after it's burned enough, you, you bash the skull in yourself, mm. <laughs> dude, you know, like we're so, we're so like bajillion light years away from everything is so, you know, removed from yeah. any actual, like most people go through this life, never seeing a dead body. And that was not mm-hmm. always the case. You know, you kind of had this, this more proximity where, mm-hmm. and, and then it helped you kind of understand that your life depended on all this death that came before you. And death is actually the foundation of life, you know, mm-hmm. decomposition mm-hmm. and soil is like, that's actually, oops, there goes my earbud. Um, <laughs> you know, where we come from, like what we need, we actually need, you know, so much death in order for life mm-hmm. to continue. And I just feel like the planet's going like, eh, 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 like trying to show us like, hello, um, you know, you got to befriend death. If you want to live, you want to keep going, you got to understand, you know, mm-hmm. and, and make friends with it. And and so, you know, get needed by a kid, but also like, go, go and, and do some death work, like go be with yeah. dying people, go, you know, find, find a way to do that, even if it's with your own people. Um, but you know, there's certainly, just there's so there's so little care for elders in 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 this world you know mm-hmm. that, that we live in and um i i think that that's really different and um in in other in other cultures where there's like a real sense of like elders kind of hold you know a, a certain sure. status sure. right you know but but not 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 in my world like not in my white world yeah. you know it's yeah. just like 
Yeah. So that's super real. And like, how lucky that you have, you know, that you have a, a mom that's like, you know, I think about our, our death anniversary, like every time we go through, you know, the wheel of the year, we pass through the date that, that mm-hmm. each of us will die, you know, and sure. to have a bit of that awareness, I think mm-hmm. helps you live more deeply, you know, it mm-hmm. helps you deal with some of the gratitude and, and, um, these technologies that help us keep kind of going, you know, cause it's mm-hmm. really not about happiness. Like, my gosh, we've been sold this dream. Like you just got to make yourself happy and chase happiness. And we have like, you know, the, the most mental illness on earth here in the mm-hmm. States. And I, I just spent a month in, in Senegal, Africa and, oh, wow. you know, just seeing, um, you know, uh, a culture that actually has a real pretty strong death practice, pretty strong collectivism. And, you know, I'm not going to romanticize like how, you know, Africa has been absolutely plundered um, mm. or anything. And at the same time, the the level of like stress, anxiety, existential, like meaninglessness, I didn't see at all. Right. And, mm. you know, I'm, I like showed my, uh, 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 my, my a family member's husband, you know, kind of saw a video and was just like, Oh, the poverty is so sad. And it was like, you yeah. know what? The poverty of our culture is so sad. God damn it. Uh, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, so it's yes. just like, wow, that's what you see. That's what you see. Oh, you they know? saw that about Senegal. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh. And it was like, no, man, you like, I mean, yeah, like, like economic, you know, disadvantage because of like European plunder, like, that's real. Like, but like, yes. like they, it's been so resistant to the, the ghostly, um, possession meme of Westernism, um, mm-hmm. you know, because there's such a strong animus tradition there, particularly with the, the sabar drum and, and the Wolof language, which is a, is basically a drum language. Um, okay. it's really kind of persisted through colonization that like, you can really see that like, actually the poverty is really sad here actually Mm. you know the Mm. poverty of spirit the poverty of imagination you keep coming back to that like how can we imagine what it might be like to not have whiteness what would that take what would it take to not have white people i don't mean like not have white skin people but not have people who identify or want to collude with that, who, who adopt Mm. that as an identity and say yeah i'm gonna go ahead and i'm gonna go ahead and throw my lot in here because that's mm-hmm. how I'm going to get what I want. You know, what would mm-hmm. happen? What would it take to give that up? What would like mm-hmm. a sort of, I don't know what, what the word for it is, but some kind of transitional abolitionist white identity look like that's not just about having correct ideology, you know, mm-hmm. but really about feeling a different way, sensing a different way. Because our very, I feel like, you know, clearly our very senses have been colonized. Just mm-hmm. the way we move and feel in the world has been colonized. I felt it when I was in Africa because I couldn't actually handle the level of connection that's there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I would mm-hmm. kind of be with people, really with people. And like the whole white notion of boundaries and personal space. It's like, sure. It doesn't exist there. Right. You know, so it was like at the end of the day, I'd be like, oh, my God, I need to go sit in a dark room for like, you know, 10 hours. <laughs> and like, wow. you know, I can just really feel like how my very like sense um, organs are, are are subject to colonization, right? And how do we unspell that? You know, mm. that's the questions I kind of want to ask, like, I'm all for like, let's let's talk about history and critical race theory. And, you know, that's that's a map of of how we got here. But I don't know if it's a map of how we'll get out. I don't oh, it's know. Not. 
Right. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> I don't think it is. Um, yeah. That's no, not a critique, I, you know. It's just no, a no, not at all. Yeah, like I, I think that <sighs> Audre Lorde said something like that about, mm-hmm. um, like the the tools of the oppressor. Like you can't. Right. Yeah. The master's tools. Build, yeah. yeah. Like, sorry. Nope. And, quote it correctly yeah, no same yeah no, no yeah yeah <laughs> but um like that like that mm-hmm. yeah yeah how we can't use those same tools to for liberation um yeah. and yeah it's mm. <sighs> something to sit with <laughs> mm-hmm. we gotta dream on it we gotta yeah. dream on it but you know i really uh i really hope that you know that's what that's what it means to be awake, you know, is to be able to like dream into this really almost, um, you know, just really grief saturated space where we can collectively go, OK, well, we're all here. You know, we all incarnated into this world this at this time. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather I don't know, you know, how that all works. But my sense is that, you know, we all have medicine for the time that we're born into, mm. you know. And one of the lies of whiteness is that, you know, there's no, that there's, that, that, that there's no medicine in white people. You know, you got to take it. You got to just, you know, steal it. You got to plunder it, right. manufacture it, be a machine, you know? And when you start to go into, okay, well, what's my medicine? Well, then you realize it's, you got to like really look at how whiteness kind of is a possession and a, and a, and a terrible kind of, you know, um, egregore and sort of, you know, filters out you know, mm-hmm. that which would make you less white, that that which would make you be able to dream, you know, into mm-hmm. the possibility of living a different way, believing different things, behaving in ways that like really nourish the, you know, the people around you that don't think like you, that don't look like you. How can we like, how can we, how can we dream into that, you know, without replicating, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the possession memes Right. Um, like there's so much mimetic possession right now, you know, um, where you can just even even an activist, you know, even around sure. leftist, you know, community. Right. Where it's just like this really kind of surface level hashtag kind of stuff that yeah. doesn't really drill into like, mm, you know, like even just saying believe women. Oh, like the, yeah. like the one that said that Emmett Till whistled at her and believe her. Right. Right. You know what I'm right. saying? Like you can believe you can believe white women, because let me tell you what, white women. you know we're the slave master's dog like we're just running herd you know and like Mm. we gotta we gotta be able to kind of look you know more deeply into like like how 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 stuff on the left also just becomes this kind of mimetic possession where it doesn't actually Mm. move us forward it just makes more more correct people Mm. you know we're like oh i'm over here with the good ones good points yeah yeah so let's mm. see we <laughs> yeah we're coming up on time out, here i know yeah yeah we're coming up on time so i want to know what is giving you joy right now oh that made the hair go up on my neck thank you <laughs> really no like i just um like yeah i that's a question that i i come to every day you know it's mm-hmm. like what what is um what is joy and what does that mean and um, cause there needs to be, you know, the human animal needs it in order to just get mm-hmm. up in the morning. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, there's a lot of joy in 
just really finding subtle non-addictive pleasure in my body. Okay. Um, you know, I've, I've got my own, you know, trauma and, and addiction and, you know, uh, maladaptive, you know, behaviors and stuff and really feeling into, you know, what is, what, what actually has a, a sense experience of, of pleasure that's, you know, that doesn't push me way over threshold into like, you know, ex- extreme kinds of states. Right. So that's been looking like, you know, just moving my body every day, like just going mm-hmm. for like a walk. Like I do like a three mile walk every day. I put some weights on my mm-hmm. ankles. I put some weights on my arms. Um, I've been, I got really sick this year and I have some chronic health stuff. So like, I can't really do kind of the exercise and stuff that used to kind of jack my endorphins a bit. And so I've really had to like tune into a bit more of like what brings me like just noticing, you know, certain plants, like paying attention to the plant people, um, having some relationships with actual plants, like that I'm growing and watering and paying attention to. Um, the, the, the animals and the critters that are like in my world, really kind of paying attention. There's a bunny that's like trying to eat my garden. I feel like I'm like farmer McGregor out there, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like pitchfork and out of my garden, Peter Rabbit. But like, I just, I like love him. I'm like the bunny is back. What's he nibbling? Um, really just trying to get hyper local in, in my focus where I'm really like, all right, how's that? How's my friend's kid? Like you know, um, I get a lot of joy out of doing, you know, local, local community care. Um, I really love giving away money. That's something that feels Mm. just brings me so much joy. And I I try to not be in like a fawn trauma response around some of that motivation, which can be a thing for, for white people, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but like really just like feeling into the pleasure and joy of not, you know, not doing the most and best of like, you know, giving, giving things away, um, giving up power and privilege, you know, um, Mm -hmm. like that has to have a joyful aspect to it or, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to get enough people to like be willing to do that. And which isn't to sort of center white feelings or make it all about like white people's comfort. Cause there needs to be, you know, a real like shame resilience and stuff that comes with like living in, in this time. And then just like pushing color around, you know, just having an art practice, like just making it, a priority to like, you know, do make something with my hands, you know, and Mm -hmm. like, it's a meditation. Mm -hmm. Like I really struggle with seated meditation. I can kind of, you know, get out of a seated meditation and be like, I want to burn this place to the ground. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't work so great for me. Um, so I'm like, okay, that's okay. You know, maybe it's, maybe it, maybe the art is the meditation, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and then like having conversations with people like you who just have a high level of give a shit and it's like, wow, what are we living through? You know, (laughs) just to feel less alone, you know, that like, I just feel like the culture gaslights us every day and it's like, oh, you should just go to work. And like, you know, it's back to normal and, Mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, just keep going. And it's like, okay, (laughs) we're like living through something really intense that, you know, we don't seem to have any collective leadership on like being like, Oh, you know, here's how we're going to like, make sure that everyone has a house. Here's how to make sure everybody's going to be able to have food, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so being able to have conversation about that, um, so that I can get off the phone with, you know, someone like you, Amanda, and be like, okay, you know, I'm not the only one. Sure. No, there's all of us. Like we are really like, you know, subterranean under the structures of things, just like beautiful, you know, worms, like just tunneling under it until it all 
you know, falls and we can build something new. How about you? What brings you joy? What brings me joy? Well, having conversations like this um, Mm -hmm. that are, that go in ways, in directions that I don't expect, which I love. Um, Good. Yeah. And let's see. I, I have a, so I am a writer and I have like a creative group that I create with or like we, you know, we're in writers group together. And for me, writing is, um, not always the most joyful. Like it is pretty torturous actually. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. Suddenly my kitchen is like really clean. Weird. I know. I know. (laughs) I'm like, you, you said pushing, like pushing colors around. I'm like, that sounds nice. I'm like writing like is not fun, but it's hard. but it's satisfying when it's done. Very satisfying when it's done. And so having gone to a writer's group yesterday, I, I didn't have to write anything. And I got to see a reading um, that my friends were putting on something that they had created over the last like six months. And that, and besides it being comedic and just really original, it was super joyful to see the end product of that, not the end product, but like an end product Mm -hmm. of, of my friend's work, you know, Mm -hmm. like I was just like, ah, like feeling pride for for people like pride is not the right word i don't know mm-hmm. what the right word is but like you know i yeah i i hesitate to say like i'm proud of you because it's like it feels like that i, I took responsibility for some section of that totally. word right. which, like is, which is not true i'm just yeah, like yeah. i'm like thrilled for you you know like that you you made this thing you did this thing it came off it was awesome I was howling laughing that brings me joy um Mm. to see it's interesting that the English language kind of doesn't lend itself to even yeah you know bending words around that experience and it seems like really foundational (laughs) (laughs) yeah to be happy for other people (laughs) that I mean that that is that's part of like what we were talking about, like, you know, with community, like there's in our like American individualism, exceptionalism society, like somehow we have not found a word to be happy for someone else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For someone else shining. No, like not that. I mean, I know in the poly like world, you can say compersion, but like that kind of Uh doesn't you know, it, it, that doesn't scale. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm like, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why we need writers like you, you know, we make, make new words maybe. But yeah. Try to make new words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's beautiful or in, though. Or introduce language from, from others. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. So. Like it's some loan words. Anyone? Yes. <laughs> yes. Phone. There's plenty yeah. of Tagalog words that don't have, English equivalent. Oh yeah, I believe yeah. it. I yeah, I believe it. Like one of my favorites is gigil, um, gigil? which means 
G-I-G-I-L. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means it's well, it means like that feeling when you like squeeze, like <laughs> squeeze something. And it's it's usually it's usually used when something is so cute that you just oh yes you want to crush it yes you know like um (laughs) but but my one of my friends my my friend Mike who was the first guest on this podcast he he said he's he's native Filipino um and he uh said that it's also used like with anger like when you're so mad that like you are just you know holding it Uh, like that. But it is more, it's usually used for the cute thing. Um, Interesting. And I, when, I, when I was writing about that, I was writing, like, I, at Goddard, I was writing about that word and, like, unpacking it. And I think it might have something to do, like, one of the reasons there's no English, like, equivalent is because it's, it's this sort of extreme emotion. <laughs> <laughs> and and, yeah. and and physical and like so i feel like we're divorced from that um in right in our english language like reserve is the order of the day right um yeah, yeah so. keep it neck up keep it yeah. neck up or you know maybe chest up maybe we can do heart center but that's about it it's like it's pretty much <laughs> yeah. nothing below the heart you know, mm-hmm. like no gut, definitely nope. no like squatting, no butt, yeah. no genitals, yeah. none of yeah. that's all that's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's 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 rough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Thank you. English, American, <laughs> white people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to figure figure something out. Um, yeah, but, it's gonna, it's, yeah. yeah, or something's gonna figure us out, you know. It's like, here we yeah. are. It's time. Yeah. It's time. We don't have much more time to like repattern ourselves, you know. Yeah. Stop being machines and start being like actual animals again. Right? Yeah. Mm. Like that. Thank you so much, Rachel, for this amazing conversation. Absolutely, my pleasure, Amanda. Thank you. I loved it. <laughs> Me too. And you know, we can come back and have a more structured conversation and talk more about Goddard. But I just loved this conversation. <laughs> so. I did too. I did too. And I appreciate you letting me ramble. And um, you know, may not it, at all. May it be of service, and you know, yeah. may all beings uh, thrive and be free. Beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. For more information about anything we talked about, please check the show notes. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Council. It is produced, hosted, and edited by Amanda Faye Laxon. If you are interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.